0: Hello, non-apologizers. Not sure I want to give a name to my listeners just yet, but anyways, I'm your host, Nikki, and this is Still Won't Apologize, a place where we can have unfiltered conversations about everyday life. I want to take the time and say thank you for downloading this episode and continuing to listen. Join me every other week as I sit down with guests or myself, uh, discuss different paths that life has taken, maybe share some expertise information or maybe just have conversations about random stuff who really knows anyways i promise you that you will either laugh cry or quite possibly give you something to carry with you as you navigate life as always here's a reminder that you do not need to apologize for being yourself and i really hope you enjoy this episode everyone. Welcome to Still Won't Apologize. I am here with uh, author Allie Byrd. Allie wrote a book that is essentially a roadmap for anyone that is a support person to somebody who is dealing with grief in their life. Um, Allie loved the book. I did an audiobook to make sure that I can listen to it before we sat down. So why don't you take some time and introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, so thank you so much for having me on the show. Um again, my name is Allie Bird. I am a coach, a therapist in training. Um I have a background in community development and yeah, more recently I wrote this book called Grief Ally, helping the people you love cope with death, loss and grief. And uh I wrote this book. Um you know, grief isn't something that people are naturally drawn to writing about. It's uh <laughs> But uh, in 2019, I was, you know, moving along in my life, thought I was doing a pretty good job at it. And um, completely unexpectedly, my husband died and I was thrown into the world of grief and loss and bereavement without any understanding of what it was and how to even survive in a landscape that was completely foreign to me. Um, So. There are a multitude of ways that people um, experience grief, express their grief. uh, And for me, it was very much a cognitive experience. I consumed all the information I could about what was happening to my brain and my body and my environment. And that eventually became a book because I found that despite there being a multitude of resources for people like me who are at the epicenter of something really bad. Um, there aren't as many tools or there actually really aren't any tools at all um, for people who are in a more support role.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: when something bad happens, the people who are more on the fringes um, of that tragedy have more capacity to learn new things and absorb new information, and they are the ones who are asking, what do I do? How do I help? How do I not make this worse? And my community did a really, really great job um, despite being afraid, despite making mistakes. Um, So I took what I knew from this cognitive grief experience, from my work as a coach and from the lessons of the people around me and uh, put it into something that I hope will help a lot of people. In the future, when they get the phone call, you know, from their best friend who says their husband died, or someone loses a child, or you know, uh, perinatal loss, or a parent dies, or something, this can be a tool that you pick up, you can consume really quickly, and show up with a little more confidence um, to be helpful to to somebody that you care about
0: very deeply. I love that. Um, I have to honestly say, I wish. My husband's mom passed away when we originally like just started dating three months in. And I mm. wish I had something like this to kind of navigate it. And there were so many points in the book that, I, that resonated with me. And I think my favorite one was, uh, and I have a note because I wanted to make sure I talked about it, mm-hmm. was grief is not a problem to be solved. So I'm very much a problem solver solutionizer. I don't know if that's a word, but <laughs> I love that word. If it is not a word, it's a, it's great a word, word now, but I very much want to pri- provide solutions. And I sometimes get so wrapped in that, that I forget that this person is actually dealing with something they're hurting. And it actually kind of turns it into something about me am I doing enough mm. am I providing what else can I do without actually taking the time to listen to the person who's grieving in my life and go okay take a step back Nick we don't need your type a personality here we need you to facilitate whatever it is that this person might need I love that that was like a huge thing for me because I'm like I, I kind of work that way in every other part of my life and I never actually separated that as a role like a support mm. role, it was more so like, let me just, let me do what I need to do. Um, so I loved that part. Can we talk a little bit more on how you feel grief is, you know, it's not a problem, but it's, it's, a it, you know, yeah, situation yeah. more so. Yeah.
1: Um, and I just want to say that you're not alone in any <laughs> of that, like, you know, that fixing solution oriented person, I 100% was that person before um, my beloved died as well. And I remember probably about four four months in um, to after he died. And I remember telling my therapist saying, like, I just stay up at night. And I say, like, in, I'm in so much pain. And I just say, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And she's like, why do you think you have to do something? Right. And Which is a, a revolutionary concept in our culture, right? Where we're so hyper hyper productivity, toxic, toxic positivity, like, we think that like, there is a way out from everything. And grief is the exception to that rule. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you, I, you know, to say that grief isn't a problem to be fixed, we have to take a step a few steps back and talk about like, what grief really is. And that starts with just our primal urge and capacity as human beings to attach to other people and to things and to places and ideas and that attachment is like wired into our dna it's how we've survived as a species so when that changement or sorry when that attachment changes that's when there's this like energetic there's an energy that's created and that in itself is grief so grief is an energy and when it shifts and changes that attachment shifts and changes, that's when we ex- we express that energy. And that can look like mourning. That can look like any feeling on the feeling wheel. It can be sadness, you know, there can be joy in it. There can be relief. Um, but because it's a change in attachment, particularly when it comes to the the death of a person, the only thing that could put that attachment back to the way it was if that person would be that if that person was still alive. And we just can't bring people back from the dead. Mm -hmm. Um, So really, we can't fix grief. So instead, it's just something that we have to learn to live with, to accept that it will change us and grow and adapt around it. Um, And that's a hard thing. That is a really hard thing, particularly if the person who died was someone who, like, played an integral role in your life.
0: Um, right. Yeah. It's, a, it's just, it, it's, yeah. So it, it's hard to think about that, right? Because you you kind of take advantage of those types of people in your life because you're they're constantly with you. You're constantly doing things together. And the idea, like, I can probably cry at the fact of, I mean, I know I would cry, but in the moment of if I lost my husband, I could never imagine, like, my life would be in shambles, not because I don't think I could support myself, but more so in the fact that everything I do involves him. Like, how would I switch that thinking going, okay, it's just me now. It's just me, right? Like, how do you go from taking... That mindset and not only just, um, making it reality, but accepting that reality, right? Because that's what you kind of have to do. So yeah. how did you kind of do good. that?
1: <laughs> um, I'd say it's an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think, you know, you use the word acceptance, which is, um, a really, um, You people talk about the five stages of grief and acceptance being like the final stage. I'm going to tell you right now, throw out the five stages of grief. They're (laughs) no longer relevant. They were written in the 60s. They weren't even written about grief. They were adapted from people who were dying. So let's toss all those out. But the concept of acceptance, I think people think that, you know, acceptance means that you have to like it. Right. And the reality is, is that you don't. I'm never going to like the fact that, will is dead that's not in the cards for me i will always wish that he did not die i will always wish that he was physically present in my life um and i like that's that will always be unsettling for me but i can accept the reality that he is gone physically and i need to figure out a way to you know move forward because the reality is is that i could live a very long time Mm -hmm. from now he I was 30 when he died um in 2019 so I think for me the the and I say that with the caveat that like you do not have to accept it immediately right like there is a reconciliation process of not wanting it to be true and recognizing it Mm -hmm. that it is true and existing in that space of tension for a long time Right. Um, and that is okay. Um, I think the concept that I love about your podcast is like being like unapologetic about things. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that really gets in people's way is trying to navigate grief as if there is a roadmap for it, but grief is so unique to every human being that it's impossible to give someone a roadmap. Right. right. It, it really is impossible. So there is a level of like self-agency and empowerment that needs to happen for someone who is trying to exist in a world that they would never choose to live in. Right. Um, and that's, that's partially the work of that I teach in the book is like empowering this person that you love who is grieving to do what feels good for them.
0: Right. And I, love, I, I like love that because I'm a... I I feel like I've said this so many times in my life, everybody grieves differently. When my husband was going through, you know, losing his mom, that was something I kept saying to him because, you know, there were times where things came up where people expected more from him, like visibly see him grieve. And I remember reminding him, I'm like, we all grieve differently, like do it however you need to do it. Um, I recently just wrote a blog post on my own grief. I was diagnosed with grief reaction last year because I had to have a partial hysterectomy. Now I'm very much did not face it at all. As far as I was concerned, I was fine, but my body had manifested all of these other symptoms because clearly I was ignoring like the glaring (laughs) issue. But again, it wasn't that I felt the need to grieve. It was just more so that I just wanted to move on. Like I didn't want that to be a thing for me. Not having kids was not something I wanted to sit and dwell in. I mean, I remember my mom calling me up one time. She was upset about it and she was crying and she was like, you don't even talk about it. And I was like, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I just want to have my one moment where, you know, I let it all out and then I'm going to move on. And that brings me to a point you mentioned as well. I think it was in the beginning of the book of secondary losses. where yes. you, you talk about events in which the they come back. What would you talk, can you talk to that point on like, what, what should people, I don't want to say what should people do? Cause obviously everybody should, you know, or is going to do different things, but can we kind of dive into what you mean by secondary losses and what advice you have for when those moments happen?
1: Yeah. So secondary losses are all the losses that happen after or before that primary loss. So if we're talking about the concept of a person dying, Like there are things that cannot happen in the future because that person is now gone. So you might experience changes in relationships. You might have to take on certain tasks that they did that are now your responsibility. Um, and those things range from, you know, small scale to like having to take out the garbage now Mm -hmm. and remember what day you take out the garbage to like, Oh, I don't talk to those people anymore. and while we have formal ceremonies and rituals for like remembering the person who died and celebrating their life we don't have the same experience for those secondary losses so they often exist under the radar and people don't necessarily recognize that they are happening constantly so like you experience like for example when i came out with this book like I am so proud of this book. It is a big Mm. accomplishment for me. But at the same time, like, I wish Will was here so I could share it with him because he was my biggest fan. He was my biggest champion. And I know we would have gone and ate sushi and drank a lot of wine and just (laughs) had like a really great time together. Mm. But I, you know, I stayed home and had a virtual launch party with like the people that loved me the most. But there was obviously someone missing. And that, you know, that makes those moments bittersweet. Whereas other people would look at it and be like, wow, wow you wrote a book. Congratulations. Mm. That's so big and exciting. I'm like, yes, but right. Um, and in terms of managing that, and I, th- I think this is, you know, a part of the reality of grief that it doesn't get fixed. It doesn't go away. We only carry it and move forward instead of moving on is because those secondary losses constantly happen. So like the resolving grief can't be like a linear process it is something that is like ongoing and a bit cyclical so my best advice for anyone is that like and I teach this in the book is that you can't fix grief as though it's a problem to be solved so whatever like where you have agency is making your life easier and more comfortable and that goes for a person who is bereaved but then also their allies around them how do you make this person's life more comfortable and easier. Mm -hmm. And I would apply that to just anyone's like grief reactions and responses. Like what can you do for yourself in that moment to, to be more comfortable? And if that's going back to bed, go back to bed.
0: Yeah. I think when I've had one, one moment that really sticks out in my brain (laughs) that happened when I realized, Oh, Oh shit, I have a problem. Like I need to do something. I watched, um, it was on Netflix, Firefly Lane. I don't know if you watch Netflix. uh, What's her name in Heigl, right? Heigl. Uh, Heigl. Yes. Thank you. Um, She experiences a miscarriage and she goes to work. And for whatever reason, that particular scene, I've never cried or never felt any like emotion towards that in anything else that I've seen or read but for whatever it was shortly after I made the decision to have the surgery and I lost it like my husband came home I was in a fetal position bawling my eyes out and I was like I don't know what's wrong with me (laughs) but like that was that moment and I'm like thankfully I haven't had moments like that but that was my moment or I where I was like okay maybe I am actually leaving this and maybe I Mm -hmm. should let my body react however it needs to so one of the things i've been teaching myself because i think i'm still kind of dealing with a lot of it um is to sit with my emotions and that's not something i used to never that's not something i used to ever do i'm very much like let's just move on which i mentioned earlier and now i'm going all right i feel something i feel something let me let me just sit with it and that's been my kind of my exercise with dealing with it instead of denying myself those feelings It's amazing what the body can do.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And that's a great point. Like there's a great uh, organization they have since dissolved, but it's called Being Here Human. And they really advocate that like grief um, is a involuntary process that happens in our bodies and it happens without our consent. But it is the same as like, it is not a feeling akin to like child uh, birth is Mm -hmm. not a feeling. Right, right. But our body knows what to do, right? And hopefully, I, this is o- an okay analogy to oh, use girl. in your context. Yeah, totally fine. But you know, like a a woman's body when she is having a baby, all of a sudden is not hers anymore, right? right? Like our bodies know what to do to get that baby out, and it's the same thing with grief. Like our there is something inherent in our bodies that is unique for everyone, but it, it is something that says like. Uh, there is something happening inside me and I need to get it out. Whether right. that is like doing things like right. reading, digging a hole, taking up <laughs> a new hobby, or like deep emotional expression, Right. like our bodies know what to do. And it, it's our culture that's taken away this understanding that, or this permission that grief is worthy of our time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I firmly believe that if we do give grief the time that it demands yeah. that we have a much easier life ahead of us, right. but for so many reasons, we don't, we don't give ourselves that space and we don't allow others that space either.
0: Right. I literally like, when I tell this story to people, I'm like the universe or my, uh, the universe, my body sat me down and said, get your, get your ass in bed and deal with this because I'm tired of dealing with it on my own like that's how I talk about it Mm. like my body put me in my place you're going to forcibly deal with this right now and you cannot ignore it anymore there was another part in your book and I'm trying to remember what chapter it was and I think it was the different types of grievers you said something along the lines Mm -hmm. of instrumental and what was the second one intuitive intuitive yes Can we talk about that? Because this was fascinating to me.
1: Yes. Um, So I I just kind of brought that up. But it's essentially like our grief expression. So there's that energy inside of us that's that grief. And then our grief expression kind of exists on a continuum. So some researchers named Doka and Martin wrote this book called called Grieving Beyond Gender. And they define grief expression on a continuum. On one end is an, an intuitive griever. And the intuitive griever is the person who has this like deep emotional expression with their grief. They are the people who do really well in support groups. They they want to be witnessed in their emotional state. On the other end of that continuum is an instrumental griever. And for the people on this end of the continuum, it's more of a cognitive experience. About it's about problem solving, it's about doing an action and less about the emotions um, that might be there. Mm -hmm. Most people are more closer to the center of that continuum and have a bit of a blended um, experience with both the instrumental and the intuitive. But I think it's really important to understand that if you are not crying, that is okay. Like you may exist on that instrumental side of the continuum and you just really need, like, it might be more like anxiety and you have to deal with your anxiety in some Mm -hmm. way or, yeah, it's just like, it's more in your brain than your body.
0: Right. That's and, why I, I think I loved it so much is because when people think of grief, they they of course, it's sad. They think of sadness. They expect you to be this blubbering mess. And instead giving grace to the people that kind of internalize that there's, it's almost like you, you're, you're setting rules to how people are supposed to experience something so traumatic. And it's honestly, it's unfair, right? Like I completely agree it's unfair. Like you have a set of standards in which I need to grieve my trauma, not yours. And the fact that you're telling me, why aren't you crying? Or why didn't you do this? Like it's, it's mind boggling. But again, it's, it's this standard that we've kind of, as a society have set for that type of problem. So hearing the difference in the two was, was, I loved it. It was probably one of my favorite parts of the book. Oh, <laughs> good. I'm so glad. <laughs> Yeah. Um, There was another part too. I think it was in the chapter about active listening. I think Mm. that one, I think I could spend quite a bit of time on that because I'm so guilty of not doing that and not purposely. (laughs) Well, it's a hard
1: thing to do. Um, right? So yeah, in the, in the chapter, I, there's an entire chapter um, about learning how to active listen. And it's the, the one skill that I advocate for everyone to be able to start building it now and start practicing it now um, because it's going to come in handy so active listening is different from your average conversation in that most of us as we're talking we're we're as we're listening to someone we're filing things in our brains for the next thing that we're going to say in the conversation Active listening is not that active listening is being engaged in the conversation with all your senses and really being present to what is being shared with you whether it is verbally being shared with you or through body language it's being shared with you and when you give that to someone it is so powerful to know that you are invested in what it is they are sharing with no intention of fixing it or trying to problem solve what it is they're sharing or being scared. Because um, I, I think, you know, a lot of us are concerned about if we, if we do share our truth, if we share our grief, people are going to freeze up and run away. I mean, I, I experienced that early on and that is what kind of creates that like grieving behind closed doors experience. But if you can actively listen to someone, it is such a useful tool for them to be able to start making sense of what has happened to them, what has happened to their life. And storytelling is huge in that process. Um, So active listening, literally, like someone like is sharing with you, block out everything else that's happening in the room. Comp- give that person all your attention. Don't look at your phone. Don't watch TV. Um. And just give them all of your attention. And if you're worried about what to, like, say in the conversation, like, literally say, do you want to tell me more? Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing. Like, repeat words that are really, like, are showing, like, really deep experience for them. So it's like, wow, like, I would feel that way too. Or, like, it makes so much sense that you feel that way. And I think one thing people have a misconception about is that um, and I write about this in the book that to actively listen, you need to be physically present with someone, which isn't always the case. You can definitely active listen on the phone um, by using uh, repeating language that you're hearing your person say Mm -hmm. Um, it's actually, there was a study done that uh, found that as someone is talking we can like use verbal cues to like keep them going. So by saying like, mm-hmm, okay, yes. Do you want to tell me more? Those immediacy behaviors are actually what signals to the person talking that you're listening. Mm-hmm. It's less about the um, your physical appearance, although that is important if you are in person. But if you are talking to someone on the phone and using those immediacy behaviors, it's just as effective. To as being in person and present with someone. So, when there's a lot of advice that gets thrown around after someone dies about like, don't disappear, keep showing up, that doesn't mean that you have to be like knocking on their door like every other day. Like, you can be present and you can continue to check in and you can be useful through text message, on the phone, FaceTime. You don't have to like be physically in the room with them every
0: day right you mentioned um earlier, I think and what you were just explaining about um how people actively listening or or not being or running away um there was part of your book if you don't mind sharing it, but you did ex- you did explain a situation in which you did have a friend just up and leave because it was just there was just a lot going on and people were were clashing on what type of person they needed to be for you. and you mentioned, I think you used the term, you know the primary support person and then like or you use a baseball was it a baseball team there's something you use please correct me soccer team <laughs> soccer team there it is I love the analogy because again everybody's fighting for this position but also you need to be able to support the other supporters um so I I I love the concept in in that chapter so let's dive into that
1: <laughs> yeah so um obviously when we are in relation with many people in our lives. Um, And when something tragic happens, everybody like jumps in to be helpful, which is great. Um, It feels so good to feel loved and taken care of when something bad happens to you. The reality is though, is that there is a lot of people um, wanting to do that job. And I think, you know, in situations even like if the death was like unexpected or sudden that you know everybody's nervous systems are heightened so there is a beautiful um environment here for conflict to brew Mm -hmm. um that happened in my case um there were just so many people that wanted to help me and they weren't engaged with each other in meaningful ways so conflict erupted um but what I advocate for is let the person that you are trying to help be like, be the leader, let them be the expert, ask them what they want and then respect that. That's the the best thing that you can do. Don't assume that you know better, mm-hmm. like assume that they know themselves best and empower them to say like, this is what I need and know that you, they will, you will always love them unconditionally, mm-hmm. no matter what it is that they need. That's the first thing. Second thing, (laughs) we all have our own strengths and assets. So if you are not someone who is going to like be the like meal train leader, the person in the kitchen, that is okay. You do not have to be great in the kitchen. You can be an expert note taker. You can be the person who knows the legal system, like Mm -hmm. use your own strengths and assets, recognize what you're good at, recognize what you're not good at. and then recognize that you were on a team and this is where the sports analogy comes in so in the book I I quote um Abby Wombach um, thank from you her <laughs> book yes uh, Wolfpack so Abby Wombach greatest soccer player of all time um has a great story in her book Wolfpack where you know she's won countless uh, uh Olympic medals FIFA World Cup titles and she's a co-captain for the um, the FIFA world cup. I, I can't remember the year at this point, but anyways, she's the best soccer player in the world. And as they're training for the world cup, she realizes with the management of the team that she's not going to be on the starting line. And in that moment, she had kind of two choices. She could get really upset that she wasn't going to be on the field Or she could recognize that she was still a very important part of the team and lead from the bench. So that's what I advocate for in the book. Like, obviously your goal is to be in the game, to like bring your strengths and assets to supporting your person. But realistically, like grief is a long, long journey. It is an endurance sport, Mm -hmm. like beyond the concept of endurance sports, like, you know, I don't even know how many days the Tour de France is, but grief is like, you know, (laughs) a thousand billion times like larger and longer than that. So you cannot be on the field the whole time. You need a team. But also when other people are like on the field, like in the moment with your person, like be on their team and advocate for them, support them and recognize that like your person asking for the things that they need from the people who are good at it is a good thing like that is how they survive this Mm -hmm. that is how they make their life easier and more comfortable and remind yourself that you will inevitably get your chance it might not be in that first week it might not be in the first year it might not be in the first three years but there will be a time when your strengths come up as something that your person is going to need And trust that that's going to happen. Stay engaged. Stay engaged with the team. Recognize your person as the expert.
0: Empower them and continue to love them unconditionally. I I love it because I think in in more than just grief, I think that's a common issue when just trying to be a support person for anything. Everybody kind of has this idea that they need to do everything for that person. But in reality, if you took the the moment, go, all right, I'm really good at this you know, maybe I can be more of a support there. So I loved I loved that chapter. I also, you know, when we talk about having our strengths and, you know, what type of support person we need to be, I extremely appreciated the, I don't know if it was a chapter or just a couple pages where you talk about you as a support person needing to take care of yourself. I have this constant thing that I say, like you can only be as best as for anybody else if you take care of yourself first. So I think you touching on that was also kind of a nice reminder. Like you can't be your best if you're not taking care of yourself. So how are you going to support other people if you can't even support yourself? Um, Did you feel in when you were going through grief that people were just getting run down or it was causing more conflicts because people weren't taking care of themselves? Like what led you to kind of want to talk about that side of things?
1: Yeah, I... My interest in making sure that people took care of themselves too is, so um, Will died in a hiking accident and I like being at the epicenter of that tragedy, I was in shock for a really long time. And my go-to trauma response I have learned is to fawn in a crisis, which means that I attempt to please people. I look after everyone's needs and I shut down. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed being very tuned in to other people's needs is they came upon my home with all sorts of panic. It was written all, all over them. And instead of before entering the house, like doing something to regulate their own nervous systems, what they wanted to do was just get to me and do everything they could for me. Um, And while I appreciated, you know, the the thought behind that Mm -hmm. and the intention behind it, it was very overwhelming for me um, to have a million people descend upon your home with all sorts of like food and alcohol and jokes and like, just trying like new pajamas. And I was trying to give people jobs. And I'm just like, I don't like, I don't need all this. Like, Mm-hmm. I live in a one bedroom place like with Will. Right. Like this is this is too much for me to handle. Um, but I can see that you all need it. So I'm just gonna like try and make myself smaller and yet all the attention was still on me. It was a very uncomfortable situation to be in. And I do believe that people got run
0: down because of it. Um oh, yeah, because and- they're on hyper, right? Like she's gotta get better, she's gotta get better, we gotta do all these things for her. We need to make sure the house is getting like I can yeah. it's just picture like fast forwarding of a movie in our our heads, right? Like it's just all the things you have to do, but taking that moment to go, okay, let's take a couple breaths. (laughs) Let's actually focus on what she needs. Let's not try throwing all these things at her because that's just, that just adds more stress. There's nothing, I hate more when I'm already stressed in dealing with something. And I have somebody that's just meh, 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 meh. And I know it's because they need to do that. But like, let's take a break here. Let's take a breather.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so that's why I I wrote the, you know, take care of yourself chapter the way I did, like with the three steps. So the first step is Mm self-awareness, just checking in with yourself before you check in with that person right and this chapter comes after the chapter about like you know this is what you need to know about grief to be a grief ally so you already i want you to have the understanding that you know this is going to last forever there is going to be more than one loss Mm -hmm. um this is this is how different people grieve and so with that understanding take a step back like do a bit of like a self-scan being like how am i feeling in this moment is this bringing up grief for me? And I think it's like just taking that breath and is a really useful tool to be like, okay, this is, I'm making this about me or like, I am feeling these things and giving yourself permission to feel those things. Like it's nothing, there's nothing wrong with a loss
0: for you. Yeah. I was probably going to, I was going to say, sorry to interrupt, but there's also probably like, I think you just said it is you're probably grieving in some way, shape or form. If you're that close to the bereaved, you probably are also dealing with some type of grief on your own. And if you're so focused on the main person in the story, right, you're not giving yourself time to process what just happened. Exactly,
1: exactly. And so after that, you know, level of self-awareness, it's often that, you know, we have needs to somehow express. And what I noticed in my own experience was, instead of recognizing that people had things to express and then doing it for themselves, they, they, they felt something and then they to express it, they just did things for me. (laughs) Um, Which is, is fine. Um, But like, let it's, it's more, it would be more productive for everyone if you got your own needs met by meeting your own needs, rather than trying to meet the needs of someone to meet your own needs. and just giving your then the last step in that is just like self-compassion and self-acceptance. Be like, it's okay that I feel these things. It is okay that I am going to experience my own grief. It is okay if I take a minute to recognize my own losses in this situation before diving in. Or to make a strategy so that I can exist in this very complex, unstable environment for the duration of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going back to that like endurance thing. like. In on airplanes, they tell you to put your oxygen mask on first,
0: right? I love and that. I use that analogy so often. It's yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then I also love like don't set yourself on fire to keep other people warm. Like mm-hmm. we only have so much fuel, and if this is like a long, this is a long game. Like right. you need you need proper rest. You need proper downtime. You need to fuel yourself in a in a positive way. Um, and I know early on in the process, all those things can get jumbled, but these are also tools that you can use at the beginning and you can use them forever more.
0: Right. And that kind of like is a perfect segue to what else I wanted to talk to you about. Cause we kind of already touched on it, you know, how everybody grieves differently, but there, there was a chapter, I think that was completely dedicated to just, you're going to make mistakes, right? There's going to be things that like you think you have, but you know what? it's okay if you don't. <laughs> and I really like yeah. that too because it's that give yourself grace type of attitude. Like you're navigating a whole new situation. Like you're not going to be perfect at it. So I really appreciated that one too. So if you don't mind, can we talk about that as well? Absolutely. <clears throat>
1: so I think, you know, we, we have, uh uh we're afraid to make mistakes in our culture. There's a lot of perfectionism like happening and in grief support, it is impossible to be perfect unless you are not close enough. So I advocate for changing of like your mindset. Like if you are not making mistakes, you are not doing grief allyship right. If you are making mistakes, you are showing up in the right ways because that means that you are being vulnerable enough to like get close to the situation to learn how to do it really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and because mistakes are inevitable, like Let's figure out how to recover from them. And that's what the chapter is really about. So, one step one when you, when you make a mistake, like get off the shame and blame roller coaster as fast as possible. I am a person, like, I am prone to rumination in my brain. I will replay
0: oh, the thing that I too. like,
1: all those embarrassing moments, like at night, they just come back.
0: I like and, to call those the the shower thoughts when you're taking a shower and you remember something from like second grade. I'm like, really? Now we're gonna do this? <laughs> yeah. Exactly,
1: exactly. Um, I call mine Jenny. Jenny, Jenny brings back a lot. Oh, I love that. Often. Um, but uh, yeah, so as soon as you can, like, recognize when you're ruminating over something and get off that like train as soon as possible. Whether that's like talking to someone and being like, oh man. I'm like replaying this in my head. It was so embarrassing. Like, I think I screwed up. Or you can write it down or you can talk out loud to yourself. Just get away, find a way to like, acknowledge that you've got something on replay and jump off the tracks. Don't let it keep going. Next thing is like, circle back to your person. And that can be easy enough to be like, hey, did like that feel kind of weird for you? Like, I felt a bit awkward, like when I did this. How did it make you feel? And if you have empowered your person to be like the expert in their own lived experience with grief, they know that you love them unconditionally. Like, hopefully they will feel comfortable enough to like share some feedback with you. And they might say like, yeah, it was a bit awkward. They might say, oh, I don't know what you were talking about. Like, I thought you did a really good job. There was a chance that you you did it right.
0: Who knows, yeah, right? And sometimes to, we're, like, so, circle back and- we're so much like in our heads and here's like making it about ourselves that it really didn't even do anything to that person. <laughs> yeah.
1: But just to have that conversation, ask for a bit of feedback. And then, you know, if if indi- indeed you did make a mistake, then you apologize. And it's as simple as that. Um, in the book, I talk about some like different ways to make an apology, but like, it's okay to like make a mistake and then apologize for it and just be remorseful for your actions and say like, I will learn from this and right. I'll do better in the future and that is perfectly fine. And I I t- like I talk about making mistakes in the book, but realistically like I think there's a fear that if you screw up that you're going to like lose your friend forever. But the reality is like if you don't show up and make mistakes, then you will. Like it is a guarantee mm-hmm. you will lose that person forever because you've disappeared in a time when they need
0: you the most. Right. That's how you really fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my other thing I wanted to talk to you about, because what I also think was so great or is so great about this book is when you think about grief or, when you think about when somebody has a tremendous loss, our brains immediately go to food and gifts, right? Like Mm -hmm. I can think of a hundred times. I'm like, guys. I have some, you know, an idea we could send them food. And then next thing you know, they have like 900 platters of food everywhere. So this was kind of a different thing. Like part of me wants to be like the next time that, you know, anything happens, I'm going to buy this book and just give it to people. I'm like, here, that's what you're getting from me. <laughs> like no more food, right? Because and it's food. And then I think you also have um, a chapter where you talk about like poetry and like all these different types of cliches, right? And I think- yes. Because as a society, that's literally just what we're taught to do. And there are these old, like, traditional ways of handling things. Because if you think from a generational standpoint, we didn't talk about our feelings, right? So it would be, here's a card with some money in it. Here's a platter of, you know, green bean casserole. Sorry for your loss. (laughs) Yeah. I think the focus of that is what you're doing is changing that focus of how you're there to support people. It's nice to, don't get me wrong. It's nice to provide a gesture in which you, when you don't know what to do, but sometimes it's like, all right, guys, it's a, it's a little much.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I like, you know, I don't want to give the casserole the bad rap. Like I like, I love lasagna. I'm not going to right now. If someone dropped off lasagna at my door, I would gladly accept it. So I wouldn't have to like cook for the weekend, but I think, the reality is, is that if if this is someone that you are close to, that you care about deeply, who is an active part of your life, that is now bereaved, and, you know, whether that's traumatically bereaved, or just lost someone that's really important to them, showing up with food isn't going to be enough, right? Like, yes, the lasagna will get you in the door. But what are you going to say when you get in there? And I think that's where a lot of people miss the mark and are looking for guidance on. Mm-hmm. So it's not enough to say, bring food, bring flowers, a card, a joke, like your relationship is more than that. So you need to do more than that.
0: Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of, again, and I also like to think when, when these kind of difficult situations come up, whether it's, you know, uh, grief you know, uh, just loss in general is I always try to do, and I, sometimes I think this is to my own detriment is how would I want to be treated? But again, we're back to that, you know, conversation that everybody grieves differently. So what you think you might, you would want in that situation is not necessarily what somebody else would want. Um, and I think what you did honestly is just a beautiful thing. I think I really do. Cause I, I, like I said, I've had my first hand of being a grief supporter and having something like this would have been so helpful at the time. But I also want to say that some of those traditional things that we talked about, like you said, they will get you in the door. Um, but I also wanted to kind of add to that besides that point, there are people that I know that have lost, right? And that because I'm not that close to them, I don't necessarily know what to do, but I want to just let them know I'm thanking them. So some of the times I'll just do a quick text. Hey, no, you know, I know you just went through a whole bunch of stuff. If you ever want to talk, I'm here and something just as little as that. And I've noticed there are people that I probably haven't talked to in months, but once I reach out to them, they're talking to me every day. Right. Because Mm. now it was my turn, as you said, now it's my turn to come, come into play.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Get off the bench. I'm ready for you now.
0: Yeah. 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 when it came to writing this, now, I understand why you wrote it. Do you feel that any part of your healing journey, um, was this book contributing to that, you think? Did it give you kind of a little bit of healing? I know you're not 100% going to ever be fully healed from it, but do you think this was kind of a way of exploring different options to kind of heal your heart in, in all of this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, I talk about like, like comfort and ease, Mm -hmm. like this, this project um, definitely like gave me purpose um, through the first like three years. And in the moments when I just like sat down and like got to be creative with all my sticky notes and like Mm -hmm. the writing and that sort of thing and, and thinking about Will and that moment that I lost him and like all this stuff and the stories of the people who, you know, did a really good job, like that brought me so much comfort, and it was something that I could dip back into, you know, continuously. Um, and it really was a joyful process. In fact, like that was only the only way that I would work on it is when it was bringing me joy. If I wasn't, if I w- had no joy, I, it sat right,
0: um, it probably would have been a different book,
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's also like, um, I talk about this in the last chapter of the book how. Shame or the risk of shame is really a threat is a threat to people who are bereaved um, because often people can't sit with us and the pain or just the, in remembering the people who have died, because we have this kind of like death adverse culture. Um, And my hope is that like with this book, people have, more support around them to kind of coexist with their grief Mm -hmm. and continue to like have lives that are you know big and robust instead of having to like live two separate lives like where their grief exists behind a closed door and then the rest of them gets to exist out in the light and for me this book is like a tool that kind of like keeps Will alive and in my life and like I get to talk to him with people about him like with people like you who will never met him don't know anything about him and yet I I get to bring him into these conversations in a very like natural and like light way um and that that in itself is like a bomb for my heart (laughs)
0: Right. Right.
1: That like, I don't have to sit here and be like, like, there's a part of me that you don't know about that is so significant. Mm -hmm. Right. I remember in the early days, like just being out anywhere and like meeting a new person. And I'm like, you don't know. Right. You don't know what I have lived through. You do not know what I am carrying right now. You do not know what it has taken for me to exist outside my bedroom today. Mm -hmm. And now I get to like, obviously it's a little easier for me to like get out of bed in the morning, but like I, I get to exist in this, this full breadth of my human experience. Um, and I really hope that that's what it can give other people too.
0: Right. And it's that, it's that like old, the oldest, you know, sentence anybody's ever really spoken is you don't know what people are dealing with. Right. Like until you walk in their shoes, you don't know, you're, you're not going to walk around with a badge that says, I lost my husband, please be nice. Like you can't, that, that doesn't exist, right? I can't walk around and say, I don't have a uterus anymore. Please don't talk about kids with me. Like, it's just, it's not something. So I think having that compassion to other people around us and understanding you truly do not know what it took for that person to be in the situation that you are in currently. And I think that's, I think you stating that and, in, 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 you know, talking to those points is definitely helpful because it's a reminder that we really don't know. You hmm. really don't know. Yeah. Oh, this is so good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, where, yeah. so I'm gonna kind of just be mindful of time. Um, mm-hmm. I think we're coming up to about the hour, but where, I wait, Let me ask you one last question before I jump into where um, everybody can find you. So the question is, thinking about your past and where you are in life now, is there anything that you won't apologize for?
1: You know, you gave me this question and I... I have, I have thought long and hard um, about the answer and uh, I think I won't, I won't apologize for how I am moving forward with my grief.
0: I love that. That's so great because you are moving forward and this is, you have given back something so special to the world out of something that you've been through. And I, I really hope you know that. This was, it was really, it was really nice to read. Like it was refreshing and it was a reminder, not just for grief in my life, but for me, all the different things as a support person that I can carry on through other situations that I really hope I do. (laughs) So thank you so much for writing this book. It was truly wonderful. You are so welcome. Thank Thank you for reading it. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Uh, I just not want to hop to on you. here without knowing what to talk about. <laughs> and honestly, I don't think we've ever, out of all the women that we have interviewed, me and my, you know, my old partner had interviewed in the past. I don't think we ever really talked about grief. All of these women have some type of trauma or some type of, you know, you know, horrific thing happened to them because grief isn't only, you know, losing somebody. It's, it's the, it's oh, the right. idea of loss And we never really talked about those grief moments, right? We talked about Mm. how they healed themselves. We talked about what they did to kind of move through it, but we never really focused on the idea of grief. So this was when, when we talked on Instagram, I was like, this is perfect. Like, I'm, I can't wait to (laughs) talk about it. I'm going to read it. So. Uh,
1: That's wonderful. It
0: has been lovely chatting with you. Oh yeah. I enjoyed this. Uh, (laughs) So for everybody that is listening, where can they find you? give them your little elevator pitch.
1: Yeah. So you can find me on social media at the Alleybird. Bird. Um, you can check out my website, alleybird.com. Um, Alibird.com slash book will give you all the links to buying the book, whether it's on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, um, Indigo, if you're Canadian. <laughs> and uh, yeah, if, if you love the book, if you, have feedback about the book, I would love to hear from you. Um, so reach out on any of those platforms, write a review, um, on Goodreads and, uh, yeah, I'd love to know if it made an impact.
0: Great. Well, this was wonderful. Um, your episode will be, you're gonna be my first one. So this will be up shortly. Yay. Thank you for being, making this so easy to like talk through by myself, because sometimes I feel like, <laughs> I know it's too much. <laughs> so, oh,
1: you did this, great. This you is great. So great. <laughs>
0: cool. All right. Well, on that note, uh, we'll talk later, everyone. Bye.